This morning we're going to look at chapter 4, which is a revelation of God the Father enthroned in heaven. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. We have here a picture of God being worshipped in heaven. And we ask ourselves, what does a picture of God being worshipped in heaven have to do with the suffering of the Apostle John in exile, or the suffering of the Barnes family right now, or of us in what, relative to these kinds of things, may be... trivial types of suffering, but may be very heavy in our own minds. What does the worship of God have to do with these kinds of things? Well, the worship of God focuses our attention on Him. Imagine that you have a a camera in hand. And as you look through the lens in your field of vision, there are two objects at uh, different depths. There is God and there are your problems. And as you focus in on one of them, the other is blurred. Well, as we are, are uh, overwhelmed by the things which trouble us, then, then our lens focuses on those problems. God becomes blurred, somewhat distant, distant, out of focus. And yet as we turn the lens, we bring God into sharp focus, then we see Him for who He is, and the problems become somewhat blurred. Now, it's not that the problems go away. We still have pain and suffering and stress and struggle in our Christian life. But as we focus on God, then all of those things uh, lose their, some of their intensity. What worship does is it focuses us upon God. It helps us see Him more clearly. And thus all of our perception of reality changes. The first thing that we notice in here is that God is the blessed controller 
of all things. The first thing that John sees in his vision in verse 2 is a throne standing in heaven and one sitting upon that throne. John's favorite name for God in this book is he who sits upon the throne because God is on the throne ruling the universe. Things are not out of his control. Though John is in exile, though the churches are suffering persecution and some of them disintegration because of what's going on within them, yet God is the controller of all things. Now, what does it mean that he's the controller? Does it mean that he causes the persecution or the cancer or for you to lose your job or to lose your marriage or have the other kinds of stresses and strains that we encounter daily? No, God doesn't directly cause these things. We live in a fallen world and we experience evil because men are evil and allowed to exercise their, their will and make uh, evil choices. We experience evil because, the, because nature has fallen. We're inflicted with, with disease and, and uh, uh, deterioration. And yet God is in control even of all these things. Nothing that happens happens outside of his control, of his will. We're told that he works all things together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so we can have the confidence that even though things may look bad, nevertheless, they're all fitting in to the plan of God. Our problem is that we often lack perspective. We generally do. We don't see the big picture. We don't understand what God is doing. We are immature and incomplete in our, uh, in our perception. My five-year-old son does not understand why he can't buy a toy every time we go into a store or why we can't buy gum and candy whenever we go grocery shopping. He doesn't understand why it is that he has to get a spanking every time he hits his, his sisters. It seems to him that, that uh, uh, his mother and I are, are cruel and, and uncaring. And yet, as we are able to exercise control, which sometimes seems quite limited with, with some of them, we do so in such a way that we are trying to bring about ultimate good. And yet, from his perspective, he can't see it. And in the same way, God is bringing about good in our lives within, within his control, and yet we can't always see what he's doing or why he's doing this or that. How would you like to spend 10 years in a Russian labor camp? doesn't sound very exciting, does it? We might well question God's sovereignty if we were to end up in that situation and question, God, why could you not prevented this? Why did you let this come to pass? And yet, as we see something of, the, of a bigger picture, we can understand why such things happen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who himself is a, uh, is a believer, wrote this after his 10 years in prison. Prison causes the profound rebirth of the human being, a deepening of the soul. The meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we are used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. You could look back and see that even this, which in itself was very difficult, was part of God's plan to enrich him and make him a, a fuller person and make life more fulfilling and meaningful, uh, ultimately. The picture of God's sovereign control includes, in verse 6, uh, an image of a sea of glass like crystal before the throne. 
This evokes a, a, a recognition on our part that there are no ripples, no waves. We have a picture of absolute calm and peace as God rules. Now, you've seen the Federal Express ads on TV. Uh, Jones is at the uh, office water fountain. He's poured a drink, and he's about to drink it. And the boss comes up behind him. He says, Jones, you did send those papers to Chicago, didn't you? It's essential that they're there in the morning for the uh, meeting of the board of directors. And Jones' face turns white. He drops his water. Papers? Chicago? (laughs) Fortunately for him, Federal Express comes to the rescue. But God is not like poor Jones, who suffers from incompetence and... and, uh, uh, inability to do everything perfectly. When we pray, say, God, don't you remember I prayed about this? He didn't say, oh, no, I forgot all about it. I wrote it down, and I put it on my desk, and it's, it's somewhere under those, that pile of papers. God is not in heaven biting his fingernails, saying, what am I going to do? If the emperor increases the persecution, I, w- I won't know how to handle it. I won't know what to do for my people. And I didn't know that that false teacher was going to enter that church over there and lead them astray. How am I going to handle it? No, the picture is one of absolute calm. There's a sea of glass like crystal before the throne of God. And the the picture that John has given is dominated by the presence of God seated upon his throne, ruling an absolute sovereignty over his universe. And therefore, we can be assured that, that what happens to us is happening within the the confines of his plans and his goodwill. God himself is pictured like a a jasper stone and sardius with a rainbow-like emerald around him. It's a picture of absolute beauty and, and preciousness. And around his throne are 24 thrones, and upon those thrones are 24 elders. Now, people have debated the identity of these elders, And uh, next week, David might tell you something different than I'm going to tell you. Uh, Some have suggested that they're angels, and there's some evidence to support that. In chapter 5, verse 8, they are pictured holding bowls of incense, which are identified as the prayers of the saints, which might seem to indicate that they're separate from the saints. And yet, as you look over the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, you'll find that... uh, the rewards that are held out to those who overcome, those who are true believers, are thrones and white robes and crowns. As we overcome, He will give us thrones so that we can share in His rule, as these 24 elders are doing. And within this book, people are pictured as, as sharing God's rule. In 5.10, it says, Thou hast made them, people, the redeemed, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This reign is further elaborated in chapter 20, the description of the millennium. We are pictured as being given white robes of of the righteousness of Christ to be clothed in through eternity uh, as we walk with God in white. Now, within the the, uh, book of Revelation in the Greek, there are two different words for crown. One is the royal crown, the diadem. A second is the uh, victor's wreath, the stephanos. And here the 24 elders have the have Stephanoi, the victor's wreaths. And in the seven letters, believers who overcome are promised victor's wreaths as uh, rewards for their perseverance. And here they are wearing victor's wreaths because they have persevered. Now we have to understand at this point, however, that what John is seeing is a symbolic picture. 
and not necessarily fully representative of, uh, uh, fully corresponding to reality. In chapter 5, Jesus Christ appears as a lamb. However, in chapter 1, he had appeared in human form. So we have different kinds of symbols and images because each one evokes a different kind of response in us and communicates different something different. So the 24 here I would take to be symbolic of all of God's people, 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 for the 12 apostles. They're symbolizing God's people of the Old and New Testament eras, ruling with him. And here we have a foretaste of the rule that will come later after Christ has come again. But what is important at this point for us to understand is that God is ruling and He shares His rule with us. He is in control, but He's not a a selfish tyrant who cares nothing for His subjects. He cares for us and He will share His reign ultimately with us over the universe. And so we can know because of that kind of love and that kind of exercise of control that we can entrust our lives to Him. He cares for us. And he takes us into his plan. So God is worthy of worship because he is the controller of all events. He is the one who is seated, who is seated upon the throne. God is worthy, secondly, in this, in this picture because he is a fearsome, awesome God. In verse 5, we read that from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit is here symbolized by the seven burning lamps. Now, lamps give light, which represent truth, revelation. They're also the purifying agents of judgment, which is what what these are. So there's fire before the throne, and from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Well, John, of course, would have thought back to Mount Sinai and the experience there, because the image... Uh, that was given there as being repeated, that of a fearsome God. At Mount Sinai, when God appeared, He appeared in a flaming bush, and the mountain was surrounded with with the fire and cloud of gloom and lightning and thunder and the shaking of, of the earth, all to evoke fear in His people. Now, let's look back at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and see Moses recounting of their experience at Mount Sinai. Because we want to ask the question, why does God want to evoke this image? Why does He want us to fear Him? Is He a a perverse meanie who is the kind that thinks up horror stories and and, uh, revels in Halloween and scary things? We'll see that He's not. Let's begin in Deuteronomy 5, beginning in in, uh, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick gloom, with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And it came about, when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he, man, lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. 
Then speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear it and do it. In other words, you're saying, Moses, this is too scary to hear God, have a, have a revelation of Him, and have all this fire and, and uh, lightning and thunder and sounds and the clouds of smoke. Moses, you go talk to God by yourself, and then come tell us what He said, and that will be sufficient for us. And the Lord responds, verse 28, And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you, they have done well in all that they have spoken. In other words, they've gotten the point. I am scary. I am a fearful God, one who should be respected and treated with awe and respect. But then he says in verse 29 why he wants them to fear. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God wants it to be well with us. It's not going to be well with us if we treat God lightly. If we fear God, we will treat Him seriously and take all of life seriously. But if we trivialize God and treat Him as an insignificant entity, then we will tend towards thinking that we can sow to the flesh and not reap corruption. We will tend towards thinking that this life is all there is and invest all of our time and effort and things which are seen, and forget about the eternal things which are not seen. So God wants us to see life from the true perspective. And so He communicates to John and through John to us an image of Him that evokes fear, that we might take Him seriously, that we might not live as if our moral choices were insignificant, as if what we do in secret is not does not make any difference. He wants us to see that He is a fearful, awesome God. Then in verses 6 to 11, we have a picture of two groups of worshipers. The first are the four living creatures which are uh, around the throne. Now, why these different forms? Well, the lion is the king of the jungle. The calf, or as probably should better be translated, the ox, as the New International Version translates it, is the supreme animal among domesticated animals. Man is the supreme animal, among, the supreme creature among all the creation. And the eagle is the king of the air. And yet, in spite of the majestic uh, nature of these different creatures, they all worship God. We're also told that they are filled with eyes all around. Eyes symbolizing, of course, perception. They perceive what reality is. And they worship God. Now, to worship means to attribute worth to or to value highly and to ascribe that value to the object of, of worship. We are told at times that religion is infantile. It's for little kids, for those who don't know. It's a passing stage you go through. But when you get old, then you value wealth material possessions, power, status, entertainment, and pleasures. These are the things that are important. But we are reminded by these creatures who see all things and who know reality that God alone is worthy of praise. He alone is valuable. All these other things which might seem important to us in the end are insignificant compared 
to the significance of the great and mighty God. And as they worship Him, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. They worship Him because He's holy. He is just. He does nothing that's cruel or lacking in goodness. I had a friend of mine tell me recently of a emotional stress that she's going under in tragedy. Last September, her husband moved out. They've been having marital conflicts. He moved out ostensibly to get his head together so that he could make the marriage work. And on weekends, he would come back and, and uh, uh, live at home, be with his kids, take them to church. Well, she found out a few weeks ago that for six months, he's been living with another woman during the week, coming home, being with her, all the time lying about trips that he, supposed business trips and visit, visiting relatives uh, that he had done while he was taking this woman around the country and spending his money on her. He would go to church and sit with his wife on one side and his girlfriend on the other. And now he had come back home. And yet he said, I don't know if I want to make the marriage work. I want to lose my kids, but I don't love you. I love her. And as you can imagine, she's devastated. And the thing she keeps saying, she, she kept saying when we were talking to her recently is, how can God do this? Is He cruel? Does He not care about our emotions? Does He just twist us and use us and abuse us? But we're reminded by these four living creatures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He does nothing that's unjust. Things might seem cruel to us. We're told elsewhere in scriptures that He won't he won't put a burden on us that is too, too great for us to bear. We won't be tempted beyond that which we're able. God is controlling all things, and His control is governed by His own holiness, by His goodness. So He won't do anything that is cruel, though it might appear that way to us in the moment. God is worshipped also as the Almighty One, the One who holds all power in His hands. And yet we in our own lives minimize God. We put Him into a box and make Him small. We say, I can't bear this problem any longer. Or temptation that confronts us, we say, I just can't put up with it anymore. And what we're saying is, God is not big enough to help me. Or we might have some habit that's been plaguing us for years and we just uh, capitulate to it and say, I can't conquer this. God will, is not big enough to, to help out. And yet we're reminded He is the Almighty One. He has all power in His hand. Nothing is impossible for Him. And as we worship God in this way, then confidence comes back into our lives. He is worshipped as well because He is eternal. He was, He is, He is to come. We're reminded that whatever happened in the past family problems that we had in our childhood or uh, in an earlier marriage or, or uh, emotional traumas we've gone through have not been because God lost control at some point or He wasn't there. Whatever we're suffering from now as a result of past actions is not because of God's lack. He has always been. He is right now in the midst of our current problems. He will be there in the future. He is eternal. The second picture of worshipers is that of the 24 elders. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it should be retranslated slightly in verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor. 
is the way the New American Standard correctly, the New International correctly translates it. What we have here is a picture of continuous uh, worship on the part of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Whenever they give worship to God, which they do night and day unceasingly, the 24 elders take off their, their victor's wreaths and they throw them at the feet of God. Because as we see God for who He is and all cause for self-glory and arrogance and, and uh, egocentric pride is removed. And we see that God alone is worthy of praise, worship, and adoration. And they say, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, it's not that we're giving God our power, like, God, we're going to help you out, because He is the Almighty One. But as we give Him glory and honor and power, then we recognize all glory or values, we could translate that, belongs to God. To Him alone is honor due. And from Him comes all power. Apart from Him and without Him, we could not do, we could not be what we need to do and be. And they worship Him furthermore because He is the Creator. Just as listening to a Beethoven symphony naturally evokes a, a sense of praise if you're musically minded for the creative genius of Beethoven. Or seeing the Sistine Chapel evokes a, a natural sense of praise for the artistic uh, ability of Michelangelo. Or looking at the uh, Columbia Space Shuttle evokes a, a sense of praise for the, uh, the intricacies of technology that were are put together in that project. So pondering God's creation evokes a sense of praise in us, whether we think about the, the complexities of the atom or the immensities of the galaxies that He's created. And so they worship Him and acknowledge that He is worthy of, uh, of receiving glory and honor and power. Now, why is it, though, that God wants us to worship Him? Here we have a picture of God being worshipped in heaven and God gladly receiving that worship. In other parts of Scripture, we're actually commanded to praise God. Is God an insecure person with a deflated ego who needs a little ego boost and therefore He wants us to pat Him on the back and build Him up? No, our God's not like that. We need to praise God. Praising God does at least two things. First of all, praise purifies. As we worship God, as I said earlier, our focus, our cam, our lens is refocused and we get God in, in clear focus. We see Him more for who He is. And that recognition of who God is purifies us. As we praise Him for His sovereign control over the universe, His almighty power, then our fears and our anxieties are purified. As we recognize that He is the Holy One who will never do anything that's unjust or ungood, then all of our railings and complaints and self-pity about the circumstances He's brought in our lives diminish. As we recognize that He has all power in His hand, then we gain a sense of confidence in what He's going to do in our lives. Praise purifies. A week ago, I was looking at the passage and looking through some different music to uh, suggest uh, making part of the service. And at that particular point, I was down and frustrated over some things in my own life I didn't like. And just the act of reading through the songs that we're singing this morning was itself a purifying act. 
for me because it helped me focus my attention on God. And then all those things that were hassling me uh, lost their power. Praise and worship is also valuable to us because it helps us enjoy God. Now, if you're a uh, sports enthusiast or you live with one or know one, you know that, that, that such a person likes to uh, have somebody sitting with them while they watch a game and yell, Come look at this! Did you see that play? And, and uh, recount all the glories of the, of the star plays of, of uh, uh, all the athletes. And then after the game, to, they love to recount everything that happened. And then the next morning, read about it in the newspaper. And all of this serves as a, a means of further enjoying that which the person enjoys. As we worship God, it helps us just to enjoy Him more. So God wants us to worship, even as we see is being done in this picture in heaven. Because we need to. It purifies us of our false perspective and the deceits of, of the limitations of this world. And it increases our joy and our enjoyment of Him as it focuses our attention on Him. Let's worship God now in prayer.